great. Good morning. It's great to be down here with you guys, or over here, this part of the country. What an amazing time we're in as a nation, eh? Uh, the midst of kind of grief, but at the same time, people... We went to London the other day, Jane and I, uh, just for the afternoon. Didn't have the opportunity to walk through the, uh, the lying in state. But just the atmosphere there and, and people just talking and to each other and, and just a real sense of honour, respect for the Queen. Uh, obviously bumped into one or two people that had gone through the lying in state and just their experience of the moment and what it meant to them. And uh, I was kind of reflecting, watching some of the the TV footage uh, through the last week, I'm sure you all have in different ways. And uh, for those that have been asked to be coffin bearers, whether in Scotland or down here, wherever the different people, imagine, I don't know how they decided who would do that, whether it's literally out of a hat, these guys are going to do it, I don't know. But just the, the privilege and the honour it is, especially if you're in the services, to, to be asked to, or told, basically, probably, you are going to be one of the coffin bearers for the Queen from here to here or from there to there. And what an amazing privilege that would be. The one that you serve is your commander-in-chief, and then you're asked to carry them, you know, in, in front of the whole nation in different ways. And, and the armed forces, and just not just the pageantry, but the way they've stepped up, apparently they increased all their rehearsals since the beginning of the year um, in terms of getting ready for uh, this particular moment. Not that anybody knew when it was going to be. Um, and as I was watching that, I was thinking, wow, uh, uh, the whole nation does, but particularly those in the armed forces and those that are involved at that level. I, I was watching thinking how they, the discipline, the attitude, the heart, to make sure that the one they serve, the one they honour, their commander-in-chief, they do, in their words, because they've interviewed quite a few, their absolute best for that person. And I, I was just reflecting, thinking, wow, we carry the King of Kings in us. We have the Lord of Lords in us. The Queen knew the Lord, didn't she? Had a relationship with God. She talked a lot about Jesus. Uh, some people that we know from years ago that were quite close to certain royal people said that she prayed in tongues. And that every day, she prayed for 30 minutes for the nation, every day, in her diary, in there, 30 minutes every day. Um, and what a faithful servant, again. And everybody's talking about what a great life, what a great person she is. But then you think, well, what has the Queen done day to day? She's cut a ribbon here. She's opened something there. She's had a reception or a meeting with this person, this president. You know, she's, whether in natural terms, from the high to the low, to the, to the name, to the unknown. She's just done one thing after another, day after day, week, month, year, decade. And, but yet everybody's talking about what a great person she is. And greatness is just loads of small things. Just done, one after the other. And when you add it all together, it just looks great. It looks amazing. And in our lives as believers, God doesn't ask us to do anything great. If you talk to the Queen and some of our own quotes, and we had one up here at the beginning this morning about how she talked about that Jesus from Nazareth was a servant was pretty unknown on one level when he started his ministry. He was 30 years old before he even did anything in that sense. He was persecuted, he was whatever. And 
she talked about that and, and how many followers there are now around the world. And she just said, and I'm one of them. And in the midst of the majesty of her role and title, the heart she had was to serve. Whether it was cutting a ribbon here, opening a building there, greeting someone who needed just a word of encouragement there. No matter what it was, nothing was ever too low, too small or too insignificant for the person who is the most or was the most famous person on the planet. There is no one more famous than her, is there? The most honoured and revered, you know, in that sense. But yet, there wasn't a person, a situation that was below her that she would not serve and willingly go to and do something for. And doesn't that embody the Christian life? Jesus said, I've not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus came from the glory, from the majesty of heaven. And he came down in, to become flesh, to walk amongst mankind. And at that moment, every person was a sinner. Imagine coming from the glory, from the holy of holies, from the majesty of God, from where there is no sin. You come to earth, you know, how many of you have walked into a building at different times or into a situation and you just go, well, I don't like the feel of this place. Or what is it in the air here? This is really not very nice, you know. And, and what was that like for Jesus? Walking amongst sinners and a world of sin. A world, especially coming into the Roman world and what that was like as a culture. It's far worse than our modern day one in terms of how they were living their lives and what was going on. Um, and he came into that culture. What, what, what must he have sensed, picked up, felt? But yet, when he came, he never judged. He never condemned. He never criticised. He said, the Son of Man has not come to judge. I've come to save. And he talked about all judgment being with, well, it did say, he did say at some point all judgment is with the Son, connected with the Father, but this to do with judgment day, when every person is going to have to give an account of their life. But as he came on earth, he said, I've not come to judge, I've come to save. In 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about the ministry of reconciliation. And as believers now, we are here to carry on the ministry of Jesus. The call of Jesus was to go to the cross, to hang there, take upon himself every sin, sickness, deprivation, pain, guilt, shame, whatever could separate somebody from God or, or needed healing or, or cleansing. He took upon himself. That was his call to actually go to the cross and be that sacrifice for us and then to rise from the dead and go to heaven but to send his spirit. Why did he send his spirit? So that you and I could carry on the ministry of Jesus to take the gospel of who he is and what the kingdom is all about to those that don't yet have the kingdom in them or to those that don't yet know Jesus as their personal saviour. So we are filled with the same spirit that Jesus was filled with so that we can do the same things and in Jesus' words and do even greater things still. Amazing how Jesus was dependent on the Holy Spirit. He said, I can't do anything of my own. This is the Son of God. Fully God, but yet fully human. And he recognised in humility, I can't do anything unless the Father enables. I can only do what I see my Father doing. I can only say the words that my Father 
gives me to say. We're talking about the Son of God here. Yet, as the Son, as the Majestic One, as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as the Eternal One, He came and He said, I've not come to be served, but to serve. I can't do anything unless I see my Father doing it. I can't even say anything that is worth anything unless the Father gives me the words to speak. Wow. The humility, the heart to serve, and the spirit of grace and love that was upon him. And you and I, we are here now to carry on the ministry of Jesus. And so we're going we're gonna to look at a few scriptures this morning. We're going to talk about, um, as a people, having a culture of grace. Now, culture is not necessarily a biblical word, but what does the word culture mean? Culture is simply an environment for something, for seeds to be planted and for something to grow and become what it's supposed to be. Okay? Or if you want to use a different word, community, because it's in the Bible. So uh, a community of grace. What do we mean by that? A place in which the love and the grace of God is at work amongst the body of people so that as a body we can be who God has called us to be and we'll come to some things as to what that looks like, but also those that come amongst us, whether we're going to reach them or they come to us whichever way, what do they come into? Because what people get saved into is what they become. If somebody gets saved into a people of faith, they will become a person of faith. Because the language, the community of people, the culture of those people is one of faith. We believe. And, and, and that becomes, um, it, it, it gets, trans, you know, people have to take hold of it themselves. But if you're in a culture... You're going to grow that. If they come amongst the people of love, what's going to happen? They're going to become a person of love and so on. And I believe a couple of things. Well, there's lots of things God's doing at this time, isn't there? There's a couple of things at the moment just to set the scene for this message is that God has called the church to be an oasis in a desert. And what is an oasis? It's a place of safety, of shelter, of provision, in terms of water, food, shelter. Uh, it's a place actually where if there are wounds and things, you can be, you can be ministered to, if you like, from a, from a, a medical point of view. Uh, it's a place to be refreshed, ready for the next part of your journey. And where there's an oasis in a desert, people expect certain things to be in the oasis. When they get there, they expect to find certain things. And God has called us as the church to be an oasis in a time of trouble, in a desert, where people are spiritually and also naturally hungry, thirsty, challenged in different ways. And what God wants to, is doing, I believe, at this time, is making sure that as his church, his people, we are ready for the increasing amount of people that are going to be looking for hope where there isn't hope. They're going to be looking for some kind of wisdom or direction that maybe many aren't at this moment. Some are going to be looking for help because of the emotional, the mental, whatever, strain and stress that's going on in their lives. And, and the only place, the only place that people will ever find true freedom is amongst those who believe in who Jesus is. He is the only one who can actually set somebody free from mental health issues, emotional instability, damage in people's lives, and all of that. He's the only one who can actually really uproot all the stuff that causes things in people's lives. And he wants us like to be an oasis in a desert. Another one is he's called us to be a Joseph in a time of famine. If you look at the story um, when 
the, the Pharaoh had the dream. It was seven years of plenty, seven years of drought, wasn't it? And in the plenty, they were to store up everything and in the, so that in the drought, they had supplies for people that were going to be in need. And we've had years and years of plenty as a nation. As the church, we've had years and years of plenty. We've had it good. We've had it easy. We've had it comfortable, particularly in our nation and other Western nations. We've had it really easy in our Christianity. We've got pick and mix. There's so much to choose from. The worship you like, the teaching you like, the conferences you like, the church you want to go to. And we've just got to pick and mix. You can pick whatever you like in terms of the style of Christianity in the West. We've had it easy. We've had years and years of um, abundance. And now, now in the natural, we're coming into quite a few years of challenge and everything. And the question is, that I believe God's asking us as a church is, have you stored up during the time of abundance everything that you need for a time of famine? Because I'm calling the church to be a distributor of wealth during a time of famine. And wealth isn't just money, it's, it's what people need in a time of famine who haven't, because they don't know the Lord for many, uh, who haven't stored up through a time of plenty and, and buy whatever you want, do whatever you want and live however you want. And now suddenly there's a squeeze and everybody is crying out, what is the government going to do? I don't know what it's going to take before our nation falls to its knees, its knees and says, OK, God, where are you then in the midst of what's going on? We're not there yet as a nation because it's not bad enough yet for the nation to cry out. The voices of it's going to get harder are there. It's in the media every day. But it hasn't hit everybody yet in the way that some are forecasting. So God has called us to be a Joseph in a time of famine. And we need to be ready. We need to be ready. God is preparing his church and has been to be ready for when there's a squeeze. And now that is the beginning of the squeeze that is going on. At the heart of that has got to be you and I being intimate with Jesus. If there is no intimacy, there's no overflow. Where there's intimacy, you're full of something. What you're full of is going to overflow. Whatever you are intimate with is going to flow through your life. If you are intimate with your hobby, your sport, your interest, and that is the thing that floats your boat, what are you going to come out with when you spend time with people? The thing that you are intimate with, your, your sport, your hobby, your interest. Whatever you give yourself to, you're intimate with. And that's what flows from your life. If we're intimate with Jesus, if we're full of who he is and the priority in our lives, knowing that we, we live, we work, we do this and life, there's a reality to life. But if he's the primary focus and the one that we are seeking to know and we're more full of him than other things, what's going to flow more out of our life is things to do with him, who he is. Is going to flow more from us, his nature, his character. Because it's not just words that we speak, it's the way that we live. It's the body language, the facial expressions, the way we engage with people. It's all connected with what we are intimate with and what we're overflowing with in our lives. And so God has called us to be a people of love. But from that, the people of grace. And we're going to just quickly unpack in the time that we have this morning. So let's have a quick look at this. People of love. John 13, 34 and 35. Sorry, guys. I don't know if you have scriptures or not. Or, um, but we're bouncing from different translations. John 13, 34 and 35. This is what Jesus says to the disciples. This is the beginning in John where he's preparing them for him going to the cross. There's loads of chapters from 13 onwards where he's just talking to these guys and getting them ready. He says, a new command that I give you. Love one another. But then he describes the kind of love. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So what was the nature of Jesus' love? I've not come to be served, but to serve. One expression of love is to prefer others before yourself, is to serve what does somebody else need? How can I put somebody else before me? Jesus said, so love one another in the same way that I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples 
if you love one another. There are several types of different expressions of love, and we know that. Uh, we only have one word for love, but in the Greek there's five, I think, four or five expressions of love and, and, and what that means. The world knows lots of different types of love, but it doesn't know agape love which is the love that Jesus is talking about here. A love that is from the will. It's not an emotional love, although it has emotion in it, but it's not emotionally driven. It's not an eros love, which is driven by desire and more of a self-centered motive. It's not that kind of love. The world knows a lot about that kind of thing. When people say, oh, you know, I love my iPhone, it's brilliant. You know, that's not agape love. They're just saying, I'm, I'm really into my phone. I love it, you know, in that sense. Well, have a great life with your phone. Um, but what is he doing? He's saying, look, see how I have been with you and with others. Now go and just do the same. Be the same. So a people of grace, a community of grace, a context in which we are part of and people can come into then creates a culture of grace, an environment. But grace is rooted in love. Without love, there is no grace. So let's have a quick look at very, very well-known scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. The, the few scriptures where love is patient, love is kind, etc. What we're going to do, we're going to change the word love and use God instead. Because God is love. So love is not just a nebulous thing that is patient or that is kind. Let's have a look. Let's read it in a different way. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonour others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. Interesting, isn't it? Because God is slow to anger, but rich in love. So love is not easily angered. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but God does rejoice with the truth because he is the truth. God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. God always perseveres. God never fails. So love is described in that way because it's describing the nature and the character of who God is. Love is rooted in the revelation of who God is. And therefore, if we have that revelation that God loved me and therefore if he loved me through what he did on the cross, he therefore loves me now. Okay, that's got to be a revelation in your life. Therefore, we understand who Christ is if we understand that God is love and therefore what Christ has done for us and therefore what it means to be in Christ. That we have the one who is love in us. So there's two key aspects to love. One is mercy and one is grace. What is mercy? Mercy is God not treating us as we deserve. This is really, really important for what we're talking about, having a culture of grace, because we're describing who God is and how he works so that we then are the same, right? God is, God's mercy is, is God does not treat us as we deserve. We deserve wrath, judgment and condemnation. We deserve eternal separation from him. Every person on the planet, it doesn't matter what your life looks like, who you are, what you've done. None of us are acceptable to God. We have a huge danger at the moment in the church, in the West, is that we are trying to make the gospel acceptable to people. But none of us are acceptable to God. Because he is holy and there is not a person on the planet who is holy in and of themselves. So we're trying to make the gospel acceptable to people. But actually what the gospel does is make us acceptable to God. 
You can only come to God on His terms. You can't come to God on our terms. We can't give people a gospel that says, well, you know, Jesus loves you anyway, so come to Him as you are. All of us come to God as we are so that we can be forgiven from how we are cleansed from all unrighteousness and sin and everything that separates us from God so that we can become all He has called us to be in Him. Not come to Jesus and He'll just accept you as you are and everything will be all right. Don't worry. If you, if you know, if you, it's fine and we'll, we'll try and sort you out on the way. But if you don't really want to deal with certain things, that's all right. He loves you anyway. That's not the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean we come with a hard attitude towards each other or anybody else. Because this gospel is a gospel of grace, but it's also a gospel of truth. Right, we'll come to that in a few moments. So the nature of God's love is mercy. He treats us, he doesn't treat us as we deserve. But then the other side of it, of love, is God's grace. God giving us everything that we don't deserve. Forgiveness, salvation, healing, deliverance, holiness, righteousness. He gives relationship with him. His grace gives us, enables us to live in all that he has given us. Grace is not there to cover over sin. That is a misnomer in our modern church. Don't worry, the grace of God will cover it. That's not what the grace of God is for. Because of God's mercy, we can be forgiven. And then he gives us his grace to enable. His grace is to enable us to then live the life he has called us to. And he enables us to live it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we need the Holy Spirit in our lives to empower us to live in the grace of God that enables us to be who he's called us to be. Are you with me this morning? All right. So, mercy deals with all the negative and grace gives us all the positive. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So before we were even around, he called you by name. He chose you, he picked you out. To what? To be holy and blameless in his sight. Totally acceptable in his sight. I love that, don't you? So God made the first move before we were even here. He demonstrated his love for us before we even around what he did on the cross for us. In, uh, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Wow, imagine, it wasn't just his will, it was his pleasure for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Wow. I mean, he sweated blood in the, in the garden, didn't he? Dropped the pressure of the sin of mankind coming upon him. The pressure of that. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I, none of us are ever going to experience that. No wonder he sweated blood. But it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Romans 8, verse, verse 1, I love this. Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God's grace enables us to become everything that he has made us to be. His sons and daughters, victorious, overcomers, life-giving people. This is who we are in Christ, right? So grace understands undeserved it's not my performance that leads to perfection and then to my acceptance. It's Christ's perfection that replaces my performance that makes me acceptable and loved by Him. Is anybody in today? Maybe some of you have been at church, come to church too many times. I don't know. Can I say it again? Fortunately, that was written down, so I can. 
If you'd asked me to say some other things this morning, no, I can't because they're just coming out. Okay, grace understands undeserved. It's not my performance that leads to perfection and then my acceptance. It's Christ's perfection that replaces my performance that makes me then acceptable and loved by him. So there's no condemnation or judgment in God's grace. Okay, let's have a look at 1 John 14 and then 16 17. The word then became man and came to live among us. Those of us who knew him have seen his glory, the glory that could only belong to the one and only Son of God. He came from the Father in heaven and was full of grace and truth. So Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. He was constantly giving, which is grace, to people. So he was constantly gracing to people and always taught what was right, the truth, grace and truth. Always giving, but always teaching the truth. Jesus, verse 16, was full of grace and we receive from him one act of grace after another. What does it mean? One act of giving after another. Grace gives and gives and gives. This is really, really important to where we're going to get to in a few minutes. There's a lot of preamble for the actual message this morning. If we just focused on you and me and what we're supposed to be doing, 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 it would just be a message about us doing, doing, doing. So the message is about how God is a God of grace. And because he is a God of grace and he's in us, therefore, this is how we then are a people of grace. Verse 17, God gave the law through Moses, but grace and truth came when he sent Jesus or came through Jesus. Just want to use a, a story from Luke 19 where Zacchaeus, another well-known story, wants to see Jesus. Let's just read this and bring a few things out. As he was passing through Jericho, this is Jesus coming through Jericho, a man called Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. Things are always in scripture for a meaning, for a reason, to tell us something, okay? And he was a chief tax collector. Now, in order to become a chief tax collector, you had to uh, bid. You had to put bids in every year to become a chief tax collector. And you had to bid in that you were going to bring in a certain amount of money in taxes, what was required by the Romans for taxes, okay? And then anything else on top of that, you could keep. So there's a lot of incentive here. He was a chief tax collector, so he had others who were doing the same thing, working for him. But those tax collectors were all Jews that basically, as far as other Jews were concerned, you turn your back on your own people and now you're working for this other empire, the Romans, and you, you've sold us out, you're stealing from us, and no wonder that tax collectors and sinners were all put in the same category. Because that's how the Jews saw their fellow Jews who becomes tax collectors, okay? And he was very wealthy, but he wanted to see Jesus. But being very short, this is important too, being very short, he was unable to do so because of the crowd of people. We'll come back to that in a moment. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree in order to catch sight of Jesus who was about to pass along that way. When he came to that place, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, quickly come down from there. I must stay at your house today. <laughs> Imagine how the Jewish, the, the community there saw Zacchaeus. How they must have spoken about him for years and years and years. This guy was a, a short guy. Whether, I don't know the, where there was a... To be very short, whether there was an issue with his growth, I don't know. I want to be careful, don't want to surmise too much. But maybe there's some stuff that happened in his life when he was growing up. I don't know. Was he rejected by his own people, friends, community, family? Did this guy have some physical kind of thing that was looked down upon and there must be something wrong with you? Because you're very short, God must have something against you. I don't know. But maybe there's some things in his life that he thought, right, I'm going to get my own back here. 
and I'm going to get, become a tax collector. I'm going to get loads of money back because of the way I've been treated. There's always a backstory to someone's life. So never judge a book by the cover. Anyway, don't know. Just chucking a few thoughts out there just to help us think to where we're going to in a minute. Jesus comes along. Now, as far as everybody's concerned, because of what Zacchaeus was doing, he was a sellout. He was a sinner. Jesus picks this one guy out from all the crowd that were with him. Did you know that the word Zacchaeus, his name, do you know what the meaning of his name is? It means pure one. Innocent. So Jesus walks over to a tree. The tree where the tax collector is sitting in. And as far as everybody's concerned, the sellout, the sinner, the bad guy, or the really bad guy in our community. And Jesus goes over, and when he says his name, what is he saying? He's saying, pure one, innocent one, come down from the tree, I want to come to your house today. Wow. He didn't say, oi, Sinner, get down here. What comes out is pure one, innocent. I must come to your house. So he climbed down immediately and welcomed Jesus with joy. Maybe Zacchaeus' motive for welcoming him with joy was, was, was like, a hey, out of all the crowds that are here, I climbed the tree and Jesus has come to me. And he said, hey, Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house. Maybe Zacchaeus took that as a... Yep, Jesus knows who I am, chief talax collector, wealthy guy. He wants to be on my side. He wants to come to my house. This is brilliant. This is going to look good for my credibility. I don't know. That was probably what was initially in going on in his heart and his mind. But when everybody saw it, they complained. He has gone to stay in the house of a sinner. Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have made false claims against anyone, I restore four times the amount to them. Wow. What transformation when Jesus comes in. The guy was a wealthy guy, right? And he says, I give half of my possessions to the poor. So he's already saying, I'm going to give half of everything away. That's 50%. Then he goes further and says, then I will on top of that, Restore four times the amount that I've stolen from people. So the other half he had left is also a load of that is going to go back to people. There's a shift. Suddenly what he'd placed his life value in now had a different meaning in his life because something had changed on the inside. But it started with somebody coming over to him, not saying you're a sinner, you're a this, you're a that, you're a the other. Jesus came over and called out who he was to become. Pure one, innocent. It's awesome, isn't it? Jesus didn't go over with an attitude to point the finger and all of that. He went to call him out of what he was caught in so that he could become all that God wanted him to be. Then it says here, I love this, especially in front of everybody. Then Jesus said to him, today's salvation has come to this house, to, yes, this house, but his household, because this man, look at this, is a true son of Abraham. Now, up until that moment, he'd been completely rejected. You're cut, now you're a tax collector, chief tax, you are cut off from all your ancestry, from everything that you are part of as a Jew, you are cut off from that because you're a sellout to the Romans. And what did Jesus say? You are a true son of Abraham. What did that mean? It means Abraham is the father of our faith. You are a son. You are an heir of who he is. It's like restoration. It was like a complete cutting off from everything that had gone before him and suddenly now your identity is completely different than it was. You see, this is the heart of love and this is the heart of grace. You see, love does not condemn. Grace doesn't point the finger and just say, look at you, you're a sinner, you're this, you're that. Whether that's somebody in the church or whether that is somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus. Jesus came with this heart. 
Sin wants to put an identity on us so that we think that is who we are. Sin is not our identity, so on. Shame wants to put an identity on us. Zacchaeus was full of shame, full of shame. And he covered it up by becoming a tax collector. He was very sure. He, he, I don't know what has been said to him over the years, but he covered up the shame. He covered up the embarrassment. He covered up, I'm going to make something of myself and I'm going to prove everybody wrong. And in his pride and arrogance, which was covering up the hurt and the pain going on in his life, he made something of himself, but everybody hated him. But at least for, in his own mind, at least I've got all this to say, you're wrong, look at my life. But Jesus didn't, he, he cut through all of that lot right to the heart of it and said, hey, pure one, innocent one, I want to come to your house. I want to come, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to tell you. He obviously, I don't know what he said in the house to Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus ended up surrendering his life to Jesus and had a change of heart. Shame wants to put an identity on us that says you are unworthy and unacceptable to God because of something that we have done or something that's happened to us. But, but Jesus has made us worthy so that he becomes our identity. Guilt seeks to put a wedge between us and God that says that we are unforgivable and unacceptable and can't approach God. But Jesus has forgiven us and made us acceptable because of what he's done through the cross and by the, the shedding of his blood. You see, this is how Jesus came and Jesus was with people. This is how Jesus wants us to be with one another and with people. How do we look at people? Don't judge a book by its cover, as we've said, because we don't know people's backstory. There are reasons why people behave like they do. That doesn't mean they're excuses. What I'm saying is people behave in certain ways for all sorts of reasons. And a lot of it is to cover up stuff. It's a front that people put on so often because of stuff that's going on in them. Where we struggle to be merciful, loving and gracious, we end up judging and condemning people. There are some people that have addictions in different ways. Drugs and alcohol are obvious ones. Gambling is another one that's probably far worse than we realise in our society through all the online stuff that goes on. But there's another one that it's not so easy to talk about, sexual addiction. Stats say that in, in the world, it's between 75-78% of men have some sort of issue from anything from watching a little bit of porn here and there through to some sex addiction in their life, which is uncontrollable. It, that, that's grown faster amongst women than it is amongst blokes. It's been an issue with blokes for donkey's years. But it's growing faster amongst women now because of what's going on. Within the church, that's 65, 66% of men in the church have some kind of issue with some sexual area in their life, whether it's looking at a little bit of porn or all the way through to some sexual addiction. Without going into loads of details, because that's not the focus of this session. But Jesus is coming for a pure bride. One of the things to do with sexual sin is the amount of shame that it causes people. Because we're, we are sinning against our own bodies in that sense. The shame that comes with sexual sin and things that have happened to people sexually in different ways. And if the stats are correct, that means in this room, two blokes out of three have some sort of challenge in some way or other. Now, it might vary from church to church, maybe, depending on what kind of church you are. Or I don't know. But if we just go on the stats, and yet we're saying, God, we want our nation to be transformed. 
you know, whatever phrase people want to use, you know, God send revival, or we want to see revival or, or whatever. But where does revival start? It starts with me. It's like, God, revive me. But you see, what does a culture of grace do? A culture of grace doesn't point the finger at someone who's got a challenge in whatever area of their life and say, just get a grip, grow up, you should know better. That doesn't help anybody. But a culture of grace says this. Grace gives space for people to respond to God's goodness. Grace gives space for people to open up their lives, to be honest and transparent, knowing that they're not going to then be judged and condemned and criticised. But instead, somebody's going to say, right, let's get alongside you, walk with you and help you walk through this to come out the other side. No matter what it is. Um, Grace gives space for people to become and to grow into all that God has, to who God has called them to be. Let's just read a, a scripture in 1 Thessalonians here, verse 4. It says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen us, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Sometimes in the church, we want to do the Holy Spirit's job for him. And we're, you know, now, in the context of relationship, friendship, you can have conversations and you can challenge your mates and your friends, even pastorally. You know, there's a right way to have a conversation and to challenge people in terms of things going on in their lives or whatever. But there are some things going on in people's lives that we don't know about, you don't know about, I don't know about, because they're hidden, because of shame. Because if people found out what was going on in my life and what I'm doing, they would, they would back off. They wouldn't want me to do this, that, the other. I couldn't do this, you know. And, and we, we must create a culture, an environment of grace where somebody can come to someone. They don't have to stand on the platform and say, oh, by the way, everybody, this is what I'm getting up to. It's to, to go to someone and say, I am really struggling with this in my life. Can you help me? And so in our own, a year, just over a year ago, we did a whole series on uh, having a culture of grace as a church. And we did, well, three weeks on the whole area of sexualization of culture, society, um, what all that means, the, the addictions that are going on out in the world, but also in the church, and creating a whole environment, a culture of grace to say, if you are struggling, in, particularly in this area, but other areas too, we want to help you. Because God wants to set you free. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to condemn you. We had two of our different congregation leaders from two different congregations. Both gave their testimonies. Uh, one one week, which was a guy, and then a lady the following week uh, who leads a different congregation. They both gave their stories and also taught some other things about grace as to their own struggles with, um, let's call it sex addictions, because for one of them it certainly was. It was beyond just looking at a bit of porn and what he was doing. And he gave his testimony, how, God, you know, how people walked that with him, how he came into freedom, and all of that now is amazing, but it was honest, wasn't it? And not all the graphic details, that's not what it's about. We don't need to know all the things he got up to, but what he did, he, he, what he, did, he said, look, this is what happened to me in my life. This is how I got into it, and it just went from bad to worse. And I was repenting here, trying to, I even got saved, thought I was sorted for a while, then relapsed and all that. So he gave us incredibly open and, and what he shared. And then he said, and there might be a whole bunch of you guys that are struggling in the same way. And he said, I want to help you. We want to help you. There's no shame. There's no whatever. And it was like something broke. Something just broke over the church. And, and people just... I don't know, we run various groups uh, to help people using certain resources for men and women and I don't know who's in those groups. I don't need to know who's in those groups. Only the people who need to know who's in those groups know because they're leading those groups and helping these people. So we don't sit around in a leadership meeting and say, well, how many, who, who's in the blokes groups? Oh, right, oh, really? Oh, I know, I'm surprised about him. You know, there's none of that that goes on, right? Why? Because 
to love someone is to honour them. And to honour someone is not to talk about certain things in their lives, right? And we've said to, the con- to our congregations, look, I don't, I don't know who's in what groups. I haven't got a clue. Unless you want to tell me yourself, that's up to you. But I don't know. There's only these people and these people and these people know because they're leading the groups. And the people leading the groups only know the people that are in their group. They don't know others in a different group. Why? Because we're not here to talk about sin and pain and shame. We're here to create an environment where somebody can come knowing I'm not going to be judged, condemned and criticised. I'm going to be loved and walk through this or come out the other side. Then I can help someone else come out of the same thing. So why are we doing this? Because God said, get ready to be an oasis in a desert and be Joseph's in a famine. Because the amount of people that are struggling in so many different ways out there, they need to come in. And one of the biggest things out there, yes, is people what have chosen to do themselves in that area, but things that have happened to them. And how do we have a culture of grace that says, if you come here, we're not going to point the finger. We're not going to point you out. We're not going to expose you. We're not going to judge you or condemn you. We're going to love you. We're going to serve you. And in whatever way, we're going to help you Encounter Jesus in your life with grace and truth so that you come into the freedom, the healing and the wholeness that he wants for you. It's a massive area that's only going to increase as people come into the kingdom and what we need to be ready for. The last little thing, then we're going to pray. Uh, I don't know if you've um, uh, got a book uh, is called The Boy, the Fox, the Mole and the Horse. Anybody got that one? All right, you've all got that. Maybe it's the book, book of the month, I don't know. Um, but uh, Jane bought me this book last year. It was actually, it was just after my dad passed away last year and we were somewhere or other. And, and I picked this book up and I started reading it and just because in the moment, it was a few weeks after my dad passed away, and just some of the things that were in this book, as I read it, I just stood there. Jane was busy off shopping. I ended up just stopping there, and I just went through the whole book. And, and it took me a little while, and then Jane sort of, I thought, wonder where you are. Shall I buy the book for you? And I said, well, I think I've just read it three times, and, and just, you know, because it's not, a, it's not a, a, you know, it's just a little picture book. It's good for blokes, picture book with a few little words. <laughs> and um, it's the first book I've read in years. And, uh, <laughs> no. And uh, there was, this is, this sums up being a people of grace, right? This little conversation between the boy and the horse. <laughs> it always makes me fill up a bit when I, when I read it. But what is the, this is the boy asking the horse, what is the bravest thing that you've ever said? And the horse replied, help. And then the horse said, asking for help isn't giving up. It's refusing to give up. The boy asked him, when have you been at your strongest? And the horse replied, when I have dared to show my weakness. And the boy asked, so you know all about me? Yes, said the horse. And you still love me, said the boy. And the horse said, we love you all the more. Now that is grace. That somebody comes and spills the guts of their life. And the response they get from you and I is, wow, I love you even more. Let's walk through this and come out the other side together. Let's all jump to our feet, shall we? Just close your eyes for a moment. One of the things, last Thursday, last, a week ago, last Thursday, when the Queen passed away, we, we just happened to have a week of prayer and fasting that week. And we had Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights, uh, like encounter nights. And 
the Queen obviously passed away on the Thursday, and it was like, wow, you know, we're actually a load of, we're all meeting tonight. And we had to, not that we plan what we do on those evenings, it's just flowing and worship and whatever God wants to do. But we knew, right, we can't, we're going to have to shift. And, and how does God, it was like, okay, Father, how do you want to go through this evening because of what's happening right now all over the nation? And we only worshipped a little bit because I just felt God say, yeah, I want you to lift me and exalt me over the nation, but then I want you to pray. And God just graciously led through that evening. But one of the things before we really got into praying that just came out as we were flowing really, because the whole thing was in the context of a flow um, rather than just, right, we're going to pray this now and pray that now. It was more in the flow of things. And in that moment, or one of the moments, um, God, God said, you can't pray for someone you don't honour. And you can't pray for someone that you dishonour. And, and I said to everybody, before we can pray for King Charles, probably all of us in the room need to ask God to forgive us in some way or other for things that we have said about him over the years to other people. We know that everybody loves the Queen. Oh, she's amazing. She's this, she's this, she's this, she's this. But Charles, oh, well, you know, well, he's done this. And, well, you know, a king, well, you're joking. And no, it was. And so I said to everybody, we need to get our hearts right. And if you know you've said anything about King Charles that has criticised, judged him, been negative, taken the mickey out of him, made fun of him in whatever way, or you've, whatever you've said, or whatever might be in your heart about him, we need to yield that and ask God to forgive and cleanse. So we, we just pray, everybody was praying out, you know, in their, and also I said, then Camilla, the same thing. And then we need to, anything to do with William and Kate, anything to do with Harry and Meghan, which I'm sure for everybody in the room, stuff came up with that one. Because we can't pray for people unless we honour them, love them, really with God's heart. And I'm using this as an example because if we are reaching out to people that don't yet know Jesus, but also people within our body that might want to say, actually, I, I want to go and ask somebody, can you help me? Because I feel like I'm stuck in this area and I'm, I'm ashamed to even go and say, this is what I'm doing. Or I'm struggling with it. I keep repenting, but I keep going back to it. And, and we, we must have a culture of grace where there is no shame. Where somebody can come and say, oh, I'm, I'm just messing up. Can you help me? And therefore, we can't have anything in our heart of preferences towards people different colour skins, different nationality, different races, people that you might not naturally get on with, people that would easily, without realising that we can judge, condemn, criticise, or we might even think we're better than them for some reason. That's self-righteousness. And the Bible said that's like filthy rags before the Lord. So just not just think with your mind, but you need to put words to what's going on in your heart right now. If you know you have any preferences towards people that you know are not right, if people walked in the doors of this building this morning that are not the kind of person that you would naturally gravitate to or, or, or would surprise you walking across the threshold into this building and your immediate thought is, what are they doing here? Wow, I wouldn't have thought that, you know. And, and even that sort of thing can be a, because people pick up on whatever's going on in us. So just talk to the Lord for a few moments. Father, I just give you every preference where I know I judge and condemn. I've criticised, and it might be that you want to just pray for the royal family now, quickly. Just, Father, forgive me for my heart towards Charles or Camilla or whoever. But particularly locally, the people that God is getting you to reach, people who live maybe in your street, people you don't naturally get on with, 
people that you don't necessarily click with. That you might because of things that have gone on in your street or people, words that have even been spoken to you. I don't know. Maybe you just need to settle that in your heart. Father, I thank you just cleanse our hearts by the power of your spirit now. Father, we don't want to look through lenses of preference in our lives or filters in our lives at other people. Certainly that we think we're any better than anybody else. Jesus, you came to serve, not to be served. Father, thank you for your heart for people afresh in us. That when we look at people, we see them with your heart, with your eyes. Maybe some people here, you look at the opposite sex and maybe the first thought that comes into your mind is, wow, he's good looking. Mm, he's nice, isn't he? Oof. Or the other way around. Wow, she's not bad, is she? And all that kind of stuff. Rather than the first thing, when you're just looking, you're walking through the town, you're looking around, instead of looking at, and that's your first thought, what about the first thought being, Father, I thank you for your heart for that person over there that doesn't know you. Or you're walking through the town, Father, I thank you for your saving grace for Taunton, for the people who live here. Father, give me your eyes that when I look at someone, whether male or female, you know, whether that's your sex or the opposite sex or whatever, when I look at people, Father, I have your compassion for them. Maybe there's some blinkers that we have a certain way of thinking that needs to change, a certain way of looking at people. Father, would you remove the blinkers where I blink? I don't even realise it. Father, remove the blinkers so I don't see people in just from a certain viewpoint or a certain way. Father, I thank you for your heart in me. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're in me. The spirit of love is in me to love people, to be gracious towards people in the way that you are. Here's another one. We all have blind spots. And they're called blind spots because we don't see them. But other people see some of the blind spots in our lives. We want to be humble enough that we have other people around our lives. And this is where, depending on how you run small groups and what goes on, this is where small groups are really good. But you've got to have relationships in your life where you can say to a couple of other people, two or three others, would you help me and would you point out some of the blind spots in my life? Because I don't want to live with blind spots. In our leadership team, we say that to one another. Um, point out the blind spots. If I come across in a certain way and I don't even realise it, we just say, hey Clive, do you, you, know, you know when la 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 la, you tend to come across like this when you're talking about that. I'm like, really? That's a blind spot. Thanks for helping me and not leaving me in a vacuum where everybody else can see the blind spot but nobody's mentioned or said anything. None of us are beyond somebody. I'm not saying invite people to criticise and condemn you. It's people that you're in like relationship with, where you're walking together with them. And they can say to you, you've got a bit of a blind spot there, mate. And you're like, thanks. And you have a conversation. It's like, how does that work? What, you tend to do this. Or when that, comes, when that sort of comes up, you tend to react a little bit. Oh, right, do I? Yes, you do. And it comes across like that. Oh, right. And people say to me, can you point out my blind? Help me. See, what is this? It's a culture of grace. I love you. We love one another enough to say to each other, let's walk together. Let's help one another in, in that way. So maybe there's two or three people, a couple of people. You need to say, hey, let's walk together. Let's help each other with our blind spots. So we don't leave each other in vacuums. We help to walk in the light together. And finally, just pray, Holy Spirit, would you give me your eyes? I want the eyes of the Spirit. Let me see people how you do, not how I naturally do. I want to look with the eyes of the Spirit and not with soulish eyes, but with the eyes of the Spirit. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Father, I just thank you for just the spirit of grace. And I know the, 
the people here are a people of grace. But Father, I just pray that that would increase. Increase more and more and more. That amongst the body here, but also those that are coming amongst the body, people that are being reached, that what they walk into is a community of grace that has no judgment, condemnation and everything. A people of grace and truth. I love what Jesus says, I think it's in John 12, where he said, I only speak the words my Father gives me to speak, but then it's the last few words that are so important and how to say them. We miss that bit out as the church so often. We just go, truth, 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 bang, bang, bang. I'm right, you're wrong. Tough luck if you don't like it. That's not, that's not truth with grace. That's truth with a hammer, a smack in the face. Whereas Jesus came with truth and grace, how to say them. That's not, it didn't mean he compromised what he said. He just brought it without any condemnation, judgment or criticism. He came with a heart of love, mercy, grace, patience, kindness, goodness. And because he was yielded to the Father, when he came with grace and truth, it came with authority and with power. And so, Father, I thank you for the spirit of grace, the spirit of love. And as we seek to be intimate with you, yielded to you, the authority and the power come with it to see lives transformed with the gospel of who you are. So we thank you, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. 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 Bless you guys. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Kingdom Faith Southwest. For further information, log on to kingdomfaithsw.com.